snowstorm. Drivers trapped for 36 hours in freezing cold without food or water along a 50-mile stretch of I-95 in Virginia. After that blast of snow and ice caused hundreds of crashes. Among the stranded, a U.S. senator tweeting from his car what the Department of Transportation just announced. Also tonight, a record COVID surge, the U.S. reporting a million cases in a single day. President Biden addressing the nation today, saying there's, quote, no excuse for being unvaccinated. And what he said about testing shortages, our rare access inside one of the largest labs running 24-7 to meet demand. The major turn in the misdemeanor sex crime case against former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. Why the DA is dropping the charge. Security ramping up at the Capitol ahead of the one-year anniversary of the January 6th insurrection. Our interview with a Texas realtor days before beginning her sentence of her role in the riot. Does she have regrets? The record number of Americans quitting their jobs. What's fueling the great resignation? And once it was one of the most popular mobile phones in the world, the end of an era for the iconic BlackBerry. This is NBC Nightly News with Lester Holt. Good evening, everyone. Yesterday's snowstorm has come and gone, but its paralyzing impact leaving thousands anxious to make it home after spending the night stranded in cars on a Virginia interstate. Many spending upwards of 20 hours stuck, hungry, thirsty, low on gas, and in the cold on one of the country's most vital thoroughfares. Among them, U.S. Senator Tim Kaine, whose two-hour drive turned into a marathon. I've been on the road for 27 hours, he tweeted this afternoon. Accidents and poor road conditions bringing a 50-mile stretch of I-95 outside of D.C. to a virtual halt. Tonight, crews unraveling the mess, but plenty more obstacles lie ahead. Tom Costello has late details. An epic traffic disaster playing out over the last 36 hours in Virginia. Thousands of cars brought to a standstill by that massive storm dropping a foot of snow on the D.C. region. Overwhelming road crews and trapping thousands of people, the elderly, kids, and pets in their cars. It started last night, a sea of static red taillights in freezing temps. By morning through most of the day, they barely budged. Overhead, NBC Washington's news chopper. Some folks stuck in their vehicles overnight with little food or water. And no restrooms. The affected highway, a 50-mile stretch of I-95 from Caroline County, Virginia, to Dumfries. With few off-ramps, drivers had no escape. But even the side roads are clogged. We have little kids, and we're doing the best we can. Um, but, of course, there's other people who, who need assistance more than we do. Among the thousands trapped for 20 hours or longer, the Sabon family driving from Boston to Florida. Watching the sunrise at 7 a.m., the kids asleep in the back seat. We got here about 9 o'clock last night. Um, we haven't moved. <laughs> so um, that's kind of how it's been. Also stuck for more than 26 hours, Senator Tim Kaine. There's families with kids. There's families that have seniors in the car, people with medical issues. People are running out of gas. Sisters Gabrielle and Noel bundled up in blankets to save their limited gas and playing video games to pass the time. Everyone over here is sharing food. They're walking down through all the lanes and offering snacks up. Finally, through the afternoon, slow movement on the roads and a slow go in the skies, too. Another 1,400 flight cancellations today after 3,000 yesterday. 
January 4th, and families are still trying to get home from the holidays. What an ordeal it's been for so many folks. Tom, how did this happen? Were the roads treated? They were not treated because this started out as a rain event. The rain would have washed away the treatment. And then the snow came in hard and really built up quickly. So road crews tried to keep up. They were quickly overwhelmed. Then they had downed trees, abandoned cars, wrecked cars. This thing just simply got out of control. By the way, Senator King finally made it to Washington late this afternoon, Lester. Well, we hope the same for a lot of folks. There's been some really tough hours on the road. Thank you, Tom. Now to those staggering new COVID numbers. Daily cases surpassing 1 million, all in the midst of that critical shortage of COVID tests. So what happened to the free at-home tests President Biden promised Americans would have by now? Our Peter Alexander has more from the White House. Tonight, another COVID record setter. More than a million new infections reported nationwide in just 24 hours, though some of it likely due to a holiday backlog. Nearly 1 in 100 Americans now testing positive in just the last week. Hospitalizations up 41% in two weeks. President Biden tonight saying the unvaccinated are hardest hit. There's no excuse. No excuse for anyone being unvaccinated. It's a critical moment for the president who came to office vowing to shut down the virus, but now faces an unprecedented COVID surge. The president under fire for not being prepared on testing. Last month, he promised free at-home tests for Americans starting now. Rapid tests will start going out in the beginning of January because they're being produced now. But today, the White House acknowledging it still has not finalized a contract with test manufacturers, nor unveiled its website to order tests. Meanwhile, President Biden's advising Americans to use Google. I know this remains frustrating. Believe me, it's frustrating to me. But we're making improvements. COVID tests near me on Google to find the nearest site where you can get a test. But states tonight are pleading for help. We do not have enough testing to go around. I don't think any state has enough testing to go around. And massive testing lines remain from coast to coast. You can't find an at-home rapid test in this area. At least 21 states now reporting hospitalization records and some healthcare centers are again overwhelmed and understaffed. So Maryland declaring a state of emergency. The next four to six weeks will be the most challenging time of the entire pandemic. In Rhode Island, two medical centers calling COVID positive healthcare workers back to the job if they have mild symptoms. The impact growing on schools, too. The Chicago Teachers Union voting tonight whether they'll refuse to report in person beginning tomorrow and instead teach remotely. Many schools in Philadelphia now joining Atlanta, Newark, and Milwaukee temporarily going remote due to rising cases and staff shortages. It's like harder for me to learn because some of the stuff I don't know because it's new. Peter, I know the CDC has faced backlash for advising COVID patients that they don't need a negative test to get out of isolation. Now I understand the CDC has issued an update. What do we know? Yeah, Lester, that's right. The agency is still saying no negative test is required to get out of its recommended five-day isolation period, though they say you should still wear a mask. Critics had questioned the policy since people could still be contagious. The CDC tonight says if you want to take a test and test positive, keep isolating for another five days. Lester. Peter Alexander at the White House tonight. Thank you. While the president says testing will improve right now, many Americans are waiting days for the results and hours just to get tested. Gabe Gutierrez went inside one of the country's largest labs, which says it's busier than ever. 
with lines for rapid COVID tests sneaking nationwide. Wait times for more accurate PCR test results are also stretching longer. I would love to have my results. I don't want to go back to work. There we go. Today, NBC News got a rare look inside one of the largest testing facilities in the country. Is this running basically 24-7 now? Correct. 24-7, 365. We never shut down. This is Northwell Health's 100,000 square foot core lab outside New York City. These samples were processed just within the last few hours. These arrived just within the past day and are about to be put into a machine like that one. Right now, this lab alone is handling 25,000 tests a day. Of those tests, about a third turn out to be COVID positive. Virtually all, Dr. Dwayne Brining says, are Omicron. How quickly did the Omicron variant really take hold? From one week to the next, it went from 20% of our cases to 80% of our cases. That was about two weeks ago, so we're up in the 100% range now. The typical turnaround time for test results here is less than 48 hours. Other smaller labs are taking much longer. So far, we're hanging on, but we're hanging on by our fingernails. Northwell is also launching a new system where patients can track their results by scanning a unique barcode with their smartphones. This tube comes into the laboratory when it's received here you get a text message that says your specimens in the laboratory but for those still waiting what would you tell people who are frustrated that we're not further along in testing nearly two years into this pandemic yeah i think it's uh, taken a while for government to get on its footing and to have a coherent response to this i think we're more on the right track now than we were before but we're still catching up to this Right now, it's the staffing issues. We're 
right now probably 200 officers below what we had pre-January 6th, and we're 400 below what we really need. Congress also set aside $300 million for physical security improvements. We have a significant effort of uh, re reinforcing the doors, both exterior and interior. Democratic lawmakers point to some of their Republican colleagues' efforts to downplay the attack and the few who embrace violent language as a continuing security risk. Does the rhetoric of some of the members here, the threats, the things of that nature, make your job harder? It certainly has increased the workload. Um, you know, the, the threats against uh, Congress have, have gone through the roof. Are we safer here now than we were then? I think moderately. Democrat Tim Ryan oversees capital security funding. Making all this safe would be expensive. Yeah. It's expensive to have an insurrection, and they prevent a free and fair election from getting implemented. This is pennies on the dollar uh, to protect our society. Chief Major told reporters today there are no concerning threats to the Capitol tied to Thursday's anniversary. Lester? You're at Hank at the Capitol. Thank you. In 60 seconds, how a Texas real estate agent now in prison joined the Capitol riot. She tells us if she has regrets a year later. We're back now with our series, State of Extremism. Tonight, the Texas realtor now in prison for her role in the January 6th riot. Before she began serving a 60-day sentence, NBC News interviewed her to learn what led her down this path. Here's Kate Snow. We're going to go down and storm the Capitol. That's why we came, and so that's what we're going to go do. So wish me luck. Texas realtor Jenna Ryan became one of the most visible participants on January 6th, thanks to her own social media posts. She was invited to fly to D.C. on a private jet by an acquaintance to attend a rally protesting the results of the 2020 election. She documented every move, posts that became evidence used against her in court. We're all going to be up here. We're going to be breaking those windows. Ryan says in the end she was never violent, but pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor for illegally entering the Capitol building. You did walk into the Capitol, Jenna. I did. You wrote on Twitter the next day, we just stormed the Capitol. It was one of the best days of my life. You know what? I feel like walking into the Capitol for two minutes and eight seconds was a big mistake. And I pled guilty to that. And I have remorse for that. The mob ahead of you was breaking windows and forcing their way in. Okay, well, you would have to be there to really understand the whole situation. People see footage on TV that I wasn't privy to. So, to me, it was like we were saying, excuse me, people were polite, and it was beautiful. Seamus Hughes with George Washington University is closely tracking the January 6th cases. You're only in there for two minutes, but let's put it in context. A thousand other people were there, too. A hundred police officers were attacked that day. A million dollars worth of property damage. The certification of the election was delayed. I mean, these are serious uh, events. And every individual is a part of that. Absolutely. He says Ryan's 60-day sentence is one of the longest for those charged with nonviolent offenses. Do you think the judge was trying to make an example of, of Jenna? The judge wanted to put a point on it that this was a crime. After walking out of the Capitol, Ryan posted this photo of a broken window with a caption media doesn't quit lying we're gonna come after them next so as a person in the media that's right. a threatening thing to say it's protected it's protected speech people will hear that and think that's a violent thing to say and no. you're showing a broken window next to you that's what's hard for people to reconcile okay and so here you go back to mob mentality you get in in a crowd of people and it creates a different environment we're gonna go in here 
in an interview with NBC's Cynthia McFadden last January, Ryan called herself a martyr. I am being persecuted here. She pushed her claim even further in our December interview, comparing herself to victims of genocide. They were calling me entitled. They're making fun of my skin color. They're calling me an insurrection Barbie. They don't see me as a human. And so that is the epitome of a scapegoat. Just like they did that to the Jews in Germany. To compare what's happening to the Holocaust? You know what's so sad? That I'm afraid to answer your question because I will be attacked for saying that. I mean, people say that that is what it's like. They're like, we feel like that's happening. I think it's clear through, through her online postings and the letter to the judge that she's all over the map on whether she accepts responsibility for, for her actions. I'm gonna end up losing weight in prison her posts have drawn fans and fury. We hope you get beat in prison. Some people see you as a giant attempt to get publicity, okay, to make your name, to increase your following. What do you say to that? You know, they do say that, and that is so, uh, you know, I'll say yes. But for the next six weeks, she's sitting in federal prison in Bryan, Texas. Kate Snow, NBC News, Dallas. We'll take a break here up next, the end of an era for a beloved device. If you were still holding out of that classic BlackBerry phone, we've got some bad news. Here's Kerry Sanders with it. Before the iPhone, there was the BlackBerry. From presidents and politicians to celebrities and CEOs, Blackberries with their first-of-its-kind keyboard quickly became a status symbol. But tonight, 24 years after the revolution began, the classic BlackBerry phone has gone dark. Other technology, like older medical alert devices and older phones that millions of Americans still use that rely on 3G signals, will also cease to work as early as next month. That older technology pushed out to free up valuable airwaves to connect more advanced devices. Hard to believe just 10 years ago, there were 80 million active BlackBerry users invading places most had never used a phone before because of distracting sounds. That was around the era where we first started sending messages, emails, and composing lengthy things on our phones. So addictive, they became known as crackberries. All essential personnel will be issued blackberries for companies. Yes. Gimme, 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 gimme. What happened to the blackberry? The iPhone happened. What we're gonna do is get rid of all these buttons and just make a giant screen. And just like that, the smartphone took over the world. If you rely on an early model medical device or telephone, and you're not sure if it's gonna work, speak to the manufacturer because some are offering discounted or free upgrades. Lester? All right, Jerry, I missed that click, click, click of the keyboard. Thank you. Up next, the Super Bowl champ on COVID's front lines. Finally this evening, we visit a young man we first told you about earlier in the pandemic, a Super Bowl champ who decided to do his part. Here's Kevin Timmons. When the New York Jets take the field, there's a doctor in the house. I'm a professional player for the New York Jets, and I also hold a doctor's Of history at the onset of the COVID pandemic. 
after winning the Super Bowl with the Kansas City Chiefs, he decided to opt out of playing last year. Instead of pads and jersey, Larry Don scrubs and a mask. The NFL gave me so much, my family gave me so much, and at some point it's time to give back. After receiving his medical degree from Montreal's McGill University, he went to work in a long-term care facility to save the lives of patients battling COVID. A decision his former quarterback admired. He wants to make sure he's doing something to make the world a better place. Larry is showing everyone in the NFL and outside of it that you can step up and make a difference. Was it the toughest thing you've ever done? Yeah, I like to think that I'm a mentally tough person. Uh, but in 2020, I was coming back home sometimes with my girlfriend, and I was, I was crying, you know, because what else can you do? What did you learn? Medicine is a part more than a profession. I'm pretty sure I'm going to be a, a better physician because of what I went through in 2020. He will always be the lineman who worked on the front lines of COVID. Kevin Tibbles. That's nightly news for this Tuesday. Thank you for watching, everyone. I'm Lester Holt. Please take care of yourself and each other. Good night. These grey areas here is where, unfortunately, uh, Tim Spector's team can't get enough data, which is a pity. Pity more people aren't filling out the COVID symptom tracker app. But we see that in most areas, it's above 10,000 cases per million. So as we said, Omicron is basically uh, running riot in the United Kingdom and the United States and quite a few other parts of the world, exactly as we said it would. And uh, it's really hard to see how this is going to stop now. It's going to carry on now. In China, actually, they've locked down a couple of cities and they have actually stopped the progress of Omicron at the, at the cost of locking down the entire population and taking food round in wheelbarrows and, th and things like that. Um, so it can be done in theory and it can be done in China. I guess they're just preparing for the Olympics. In practice, in the rest of the world, it really cannot be, cannot be stopped now. Um, the, the, these graphics just speak for themselves. Now, how concerning is this? Well, this is hospitalisation rate has fallen during 2021. Hospital admissions in England as a percentage of confirmed cases 10 days earlier. And of course, we know there's a 10 day lag in hospitalisation. So we see that as Omicron has replaced Delta, the admissions are going down and this will carry on going down as, um, as Omicron is now the predominant variant. I believe that will carry on going still carry on going down. So let's look at some uh, data from South Africa, which is the sentinel place we have been following, of course. So here we have the South Africa data. Now, this is really quite revealing and I do feel quite reassuring. So South Africa, uh, the cases, so first wave, original type wave, second wave, beta wave, South Africa variant, third wave, uh, Delta wave, fourth wave, of course, Omicron wave went up very steeply, but it's also a lot thinner than the other ones, which is pretty good to see. And if we actually look at the cases now in South Africa, they are going down. Now, of course, cases are always a subset of infections, as we know. Uh, the testing isn't that brilliant, but this is the trend in South Africa. It is going down. 
So what has this cost South Africa? Well, here's really the screen that illustrates the most important thing about the cost, the death. So first screen, first wave, original wave, second wave, third wave, delta wave, fourth wave, Omicron wave. And we see that the deaths are dramatically, dramatically less. But of course, what this slide doesn't show is the huge increase in community immunity in South Africa that this wave has brought. And if we look at hospitalizations in South Africa, this is this is today's data. This is the 4th of January. Uh, they're down. They're going down. This is incomplete data, of course, but we see quite a nice drop in the last couple of weeks of 2021. And if we actually look at the live data for people in hospital, we see it's dropped below 9,000, 8,800, um, 690 in intensive care, 646 in high care. And in the whole country, just under 1,300 people requiring oxygen. And we do not see an increase. In fact, we see quite a good decrease in the number of patients requiring ventilation. And I, I am basically expecting a pretty similar trend in the United Kingdom and to a large extent in the United States. Um, what should we do? Let, let, let's, let's carry on look at some more data. Um, let's look at the English-speaking countries, which we often do. Here we have those. So uh, this is new daily COVID-19 cases per million. Now, there's some really interesting things on this graph. Ireland and the United Kingdom, which are both highly vaccinated. Well, we see the Omicron variant is spreading dramatically in highly vaccinated populations. Now, this is not saying that people are vaccinated are just as likely to get Omicron as people that aren't vaccinated. They're about 40% less likely to actually catch it if they've had uh, three doses of vaccine, but they're still catching it. They're still catching it. Um, they're not getting as sick, but they're still catching it. That data there speaks for itself. Ireland and the United Kingdom, both very highly vaccinated countries. United States cases are going up. Australia, of course, they're going up dramatically. More on Australia later. Canada, we are seeing increases. New Zealand still very, very low. But the point is, New Zealand can give their uh, booster doses and do all that sort of thing and get ready for Omicron coming. But unless they're going to remain a hermit kingdom, uh, not kingdom, whatever it is, a hermit republic or can't remember what it is now. Anyway, a hermit country for the, for the rest of the rest of time. They're going to have to open up and they're going to have to be, there's going to have to be community spread of Omicron in New Zealand unless they remain completely reclusive and closed. And that's just not practicable. Everyone in New Zealand is going to be exposed to Omicron. It's just a matter of when the New Zealand government decide it's appropriate to open the borders. And then they're going to go the same way as the decisions that Australia has taken. Uh, I don't really see any way around that because Omicron is not going away from the rest of the world. Now, if we look at how this is transpiring into uh, hospital patients, United States is increasing, but there's still some Delta going on in the United States. But some of that is Omicron now. We do know that. United Kingdom, this increase is now mostly Omicron. Considering the amount of cases we've got, of course, it's not that high, but it is going up. Uh, Canada, uh, Ireland, Australia, uh, in that order for increase in hospitalizations. 
Number of patients are in intensive care. Well, the United States is going up a bit. Um, Ireland don't have up-to-date data. Canada up a bit. United Kingdom it's not. Uh, and Australia it is going up slightly, although as we'll see later on, there's still quite a lot of Delta causing most of the intensive care admissions in Australia. So Australia hasn't really fully transitioned from uh, Delta to Omicron as uh, the United Kingdom, for example, has done. Now, this is the R value. This is where we are today. <laughs> this is where we are today as, as, of, the, as of Tuesday, the 4th of uh, January. And uh, this is R equals 1, that line there. So anything below that, cases are going down, as in New Zealand. Anything above this line, they're going up. And they're going up dramatically. So we see Ireland is increasing. Canada is increasing, the United States is increasing, and the United Kingdom and Australia actually increasing at the same amount at the moment. So dramatic increases there, and this line here responds to an R value of 1.8, which just shows you how quickly this is increasing. And this trend will continue for another week or two or three, probably not four. Very high R values. Now, um, SARS coronavirus 2 by variant. So the United Kingdom, yeah, that's about right now, about 96 Omicron. The United States, probably still a bit behind. Australia, um, that is about right for Australia, actually, we believe at the moment. New Zealand, although there's essentially no cases, the ones that there are are Omicron, but they've got them isolated at the moment, we understand. And finally, uh, Canada. I would think Omicron is probably higher than that in Canada now, but I don't have definitive data on that so we are uh, our world in data is catching up with that now uh, new uh, daily new confirmed deaths per million well new zealand of course low australia still low canada up a bit united kingdom it has gone up is it starting to go down a bit there hopefully ireland uh, i think we've got a bit of a data drop out there in ireland really uh, United States deaths have remained high. I'm afraid we have to conclude that a lot of people in the United States have comorbidities. Particularly, I think obesity is probably playing a big factor in the uh, ongoing problems in the uh, in the United States. Now, thinking about schools now, um, schools are going back today, tomorrow uh, in the UK and I guess in the United States as well. Now, this Omicron wave has hit us so fast that uh, when schools broke up, there wasn't a fantastic amount of Omicron around, but now there is. So when schools go back, Omicron, although I know there's a lot of testing in schools, I know they're trying hard, but there's still problems with testing. And Omicron is going to run riot through English, British schools, US schools. Uh, and, and they're going to take it back to uh, to their parents as well. I have no doubt about that. So because Omicron didn't establish uh, in schools pre-holiday, I'm afraid it will now, which is one reason why I believe the cases are going to go up for the next week or two or three, probably not four, potentially four, but probably not, probably for the next two or three weeks. Cases are going to go up, uh, carry on going up until this has basically got round to all of us. A pathogenicity of Omicron. Now, I haven't put a reference on this, but I, I think it did come from this article here. This was actually Neil Ferguson speaking on a radio programme. Now, um, 
Neil, Neil Ferguson has got a few things, Professor Neil Ferguson has got a few things wrong in terms of his predictions, but looking at where we are now, he's a good analyst. So, so where we are now so far, uh, pathogenicity of Omicron, how sick it's peop making people. If someone's had no infection, no vaccine, in other words, they're completely naive to the infection, about a one-third drop in hospital admissions. So we can say it's about a third less pathogenic to people that have not been exposed at all. Two-thirds drop in the risk of dying from Omicron. So that's better, again, in people that haven't been exposed at all. So we can say about 33% less hospital admissions, about 66% lower chance of dying on with Omicron compared to, um, compared to Delta. So definitive now, I think we can, yeah, we can say definitive now, Omicron is less pathogenic. Now, before we go on to Australia, I just want to do a little bit more from the United Kingdom and the United States. So let's just look at some graphics. Again, th these are bang up to date. These are from the, the 4th of January. Cases by date reported in the UK. So we see we're, I think it was 218,000 today. So these are up. The reasons that these two days are low, of course, is largely delay in, uh, in reporting due to the holiday period. But they are up now. So given that the number of diagnosed cases in the United Kingdom is about 218,000, um, what can we do? Can we double that for the real cases? Can we treble that for the real for the actual number of infections? If it's 200,000 cases, I think we can say there's at least 400,000 infections. I think we're probably pretty safe in saying that. It is just spreading exponentially, as we saw, <laughs> with an R value of 1.8, so by definition exponentially, around the country generating huge amounts of uh, community immunity as it goes. So that's the uh, daily reported cases. Patients in hospital, again in the UK, well, no question that it is going up. Hospitalizations are going up. They're nothing like they were at the peak of the, uh, the, uh, the alpha wave last winter, but they are going up somewhat. Now, several trusts have declared uh, a critical uh, a, a critical state and this is partly due to the increase in demand of course but it's primarily due to the fact that so many people are off sick and so many staff are having to isolate that critical incidents have been declared and i think about three trusts around the united kingdom at the moment but largely because of staff sicknesses and of course boris johnson today thinks we're going to ride it out and I think he's probably right. It is going to be a difficult few weeks in hospitals, that's for sure. No question about that. Um, but we are generating huge amounts of herd immunity as we do it. Will hospitalizations carry on rising a bit more? Um, yes. Yes, they will. That is uh, somewhat baked in. Uh, but will it remain at manageable levels, essentially manageable levels, with a little bit of help and a bit of jiggling around, I believe it will. I'm not trying to diminish this. It's going to be a stressful period for patients and staff. I've worked through lots of stressful periods before. It is stressful, uh, but it should be for a short period of time, as we saw in South Africa. It was a pretty condensed hospitalisation, busy period. But uh, problems at the moment, yes. Um, so that's patients in hospital. Now, this is patients on mechanical ventilation beds, essentially flat. So we are not seeing the sickest patients. We are not getting the admissions to intensive care. 
this has been the same now for uh, this is a month a month on this data essentially the same went down slightly going up slightly but this is just sort of I don't think we can read anything into that level of into that level of variation so we are not seeing people getting sick like we did in previous waves as sick it's very very encouraging now this is patients admitted to hospital in London which of course was leading the way in the in the United Kingdom so it's a good indicator now um, I think some of this this data is probably a little bit artificially low because of the, uh, the holiday period but hospitalizations in London are actually down a bit so have hospitalizations in London peaked already indicating that they'll probably peak in the rest of the country in about 10 days time because the rest of the country is about 10 days to two weeks behind London well we don't know of course we won't know for a few days until we've got a few more bars on that graph but that is looking encouraging um, equivalent data from the United States so as we see um, this is from the CDC live this line here is uh, this line here is 500,000 half a million cases so it has been going up but we know that the number of cases today is over 1 million over 1 million actual cases today diagnosed that is despite significant difficulties with testing in the United States so as we say the real number of new infections in the United States today I think we can say at least at least double that at least two million um, although as we said that million is somewhat artificially high because of the holidays but still a gross underestimate of the infections so that's from the United States uh, prevalence uh, th these are patients actually in hospital at the moment in the United States now no question this is going up this trend is up the way as we saw on the previous graphic uh, 74,000 is the current seven-day uh, rolling average the previous seven-day rolling average uh, 63,000 nothing like as high as the peak 124,000 but 17% up on the week and 40% down on what it was at the at the peak so more hospitalizations to come in the states well because of the increasing cases inevitably inevitably but there will be some increase in hospitalizations in the states and just before we leave the data let's just have a quick look at the rest of Europe here um, or part places in the rest of Europe so I've left some countries on here for comparison so Sweden uh, increasing Norway a little bit Belgium a bit more United States as we've seen Italy going up Portugal up Spain up France up and the United Kingdom uh, this is just a delay in the data this is not not real so uh, we see quite a few Euro European countries following on in the Omicron wave a little bit behind the United States and the United Kingdom but they'll catch up fast and their trajectory lines will be basically the same because this really can't be stopped now without Chinese style lockdowns it can't in fact the Chinese can't stop it all they've, all they've done is slow it down so they can get the Winter Olympics out of the way I think I think that's why they're being so draconian after that they're going to have to let go through China as well um, now a bit, a bit of data now from Australia uh, so New South Wales Sydney area cases up that's actually out of date but that was the increase in number of 24 hours but the reason I want to show this data was the positivity in New South Wales uh, this is this is actually uh, more than 24 hours ago now but it was basically a 27 and a bit percent so of the 100 cases being tested, 27% coming back positive, indicating huge, absolutely huge community 
transmission. And that's despite, again, significant testing difficulties in Australia. Hospitalizations are up. Intensive care beds utilization is up by 10. Ventilated 27. But COVID positive patients admitted to intensive care since the 16th of December are 72% Delta. Which means they're only 28%, I guess, uh, Omicron. So, which is what we thought was roughly the ratios that we saw in England. So um, as, as Omicron takes over more from Delta in Australia, I wouldn't expect the intensive care admissions to go down. And hopefully these patients will work their way through and get out. And uh, that will go down. But 72% of current intensive care patients, Delta. And of those, 62% uh, did not vaccinate, so only vaccinated on one dose. Now, I've got an email from, uh, from Darcy in Australia. Um, it, it's like our government has thrown its arms in the air, just basically given up, thrown in the towel, I guess. But now it's ridiculous how far the polar opposite way we've gone. It's like night and day. So they've gone from the strictest place in the world to perhaps the most liberal, but one of the most liberal places in the world in terms of no restrictions. Clearly going for this community herd immunity strategy. Um, now we have wildfire of COVID here in the Alpine Shire. That's, the area, that's an area in New South Wales. Um, very limited testing, great delays on PCR testing. I've heard delays of up to a week or more, so really no point in doing them if, you, if you're that delayed. Uh, rapid antigen tests, well, the, 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 these sort of lateral flow tests, um, can't get them. Sold out, very hard to get. Uh, close contact is defined as someone who lives in the same house and has been there for more than four hours. So <laughs> clearly Omicron is massively more transmissible than that. Um, Darcy could go on for quite some time. In the coming weeks, I would think we will see an explosion in cases here in Victoria and especially uh, Melbourne. Um, so, yeah, I, I would agree completely. New South Wales, Victoria. Um, called, yeah, New, uh, what's the other one? New South Wales, Victoria. Anyway, the, um, I've forgotten. <laughs> Apologies to everyone in Australia. Anyway, we're going to see a, a, a great increase in these cases uh, in Australia, no problem. The, the, the only one that the, the only part of Australia really that where they're still low is Western Australia because the borders are still closed. But again, Western Australia has got the same problem as um, New Zealand. Sooner or later, everyone there is going to be exposed to Omicron. It's just a case of when the government decides it's the the right time, and hopefully they can do it slowly rather than doing it uh, rather than doing it quickly. Now, just briefly before we finish, a bit on vaccinations. Um, South Africa, Janssen, Johnson & Johnson seems to work. Now, this study is vaccine effectiveness against hospital uh, admission in South Africa. Healthcare workers who received a homologous booster of uh, Johnson & Johnson during the Omicron wave. In other words, they'd had a Johnson & Johnson homo the same. Uh, they had another one the same. So they had two Johnson & Johnsons. And they studied this on uh, over four, four, 477,000 healthcare workers. And uh, six to nine months after the first dose, and they actually evaluated nearly 70,000 of them. And uh, they compared it to unvaccinated individuals, and with a booster dose, one to 13 days after the booster, there was a 63% reduced chance of being hospitalised, going up to 84% after uh, two weeks to um, four weeks, one to two months, 85%. And this is what we've seen with these adenovirus vector vaccines. They work well, um, but often work more slowly. 
and may work for longer than sometimes the mRNA vaccines work. And of course, the, uh, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine is another um, adenovirus vector vaccine. And it's a year since that came out, believe it or not. I can remember sitting here quite vividly talking about it, but that, that is a year ago. Um, so, so Sir Andrew Pollard, uh, uh, Joint, Clinic, the Joint, Joint Board of uh, Vaccination and Immunity, um, talking about Germany and Israel, fourth jab should not be offered until there's more evidence, which of course we completely agree with. This is one of our, um, this is one of our trusty. We haven't had our trusty sayings for a while, have we? But that's one of our trusty sayings: <laughs> follow the evidence wherever it leads. Um, a while since we've done trusted sayings. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, Germany uh, starting to do a fourth dose, Israel starting to do a fourth dose. Israel a bit different really because Israel started vaccinating very early so there's been more time for immunity to wane in Israel so slightly more understandable there. Uh, but Sir Andrew says um, giving boosters to people every six months is not sustainable which of course it isn't. He's completely right. It's not sustainable. I'm hoping that my booster dose is going to be the Omicron virus because I am going to be exposed to Omicron and I'm expecting that to give me a good level of immunity. And we know that if you've been exposed to Omicron, that gives you good levels of protection against Delta and hopefully against the next variant that comes along. And because Omicron is so transmissible, I'm expecting that to be the prevalent, most prevalent variant for the foreseeable future, I would think, I would think. Um, at some point, society has to open up, of course it does, and Omicron could well be the opportunity that we have been afforded to do that. When we open up, there will be a period with a bump of infections, so they'll go up, which is why winter is probably not the best time. Well, I, I agree with Sir Andrew Pollard here, winter's not the best time. But unless we have a Chinese-style lockdown, we cannot stop Omicron, because it is so transmissible. Unless we're prepared to lock down cities, stop everyone going to work, take food round in wheelbarrows, Omicron, I believe, is going to spread. So, really, uh, Sir Andrew here is implying that it's the politicians that have decided it's going to happen in winter, but actually I think it's more the biology of the virus, to be fair. And I think if we talked to him about that, he, he would probably agree as well. Uh, but that's a decision for policymakers, not the scientists. Well, well, we'll leave that as a question mark. Uh, our approach has to switch to rely on the vaccines and the boosters, says Sir Andrew Pollard, is, is his view. The greatest risk is still the unvaccinated. In terms of severe illness, of course, he is completely, uh, completely correct. Uh, the worst is absolutely behind us. We are in the end game of this pandemic. We just need to get through this winter. And then by spring, um, I think everything's going to be fine. Now, he did talk a bit about misinformation as well in this article. Um, some European leaders, I wonder if he's thinking about France and Germany, who questioned the efficacy of a vaccine in over 65 and did seem to uh, focus quite a lot on the side effects of the vaccine. Because what seemed to happen was when some clever, oh so clever, oh so sophisticated, oh so scientific European countries, of course not acting through, through nationalistic uh, um, spite or anything like that or, or, or egotism um, but when these sophisticated scientific countries started to pour doubt on the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine for example um, some African countries uh, sort of 
didn't carry on with their programmes as they would have done. And uh, Sir Andrew seems displeased at this, uh, as indeed uh, am I. Highly likely to have cost lives in Africa. Misinformation risks people's lives. It's highly likely that people became seriously ill and died because of vaccine misinformation. I mean, I do hope this is not vaccine misinformation from politicians like Emmanuel Macron, who said the Oxford vaccine is quasi uh, ineffective. Let's just say that comments made in mainland Europe affected people in Africa. I mean, just. I share his rage, which he is so uh, conservatively uh, expressed. OK. Um, just thinking, actually, that poster. Stop COVID-19. Mm. Might have to do something about that because I don't think we can stop it now. Anyway, thank you for watching today's uh, video. Um, what we do need to do, though, if we can, uh, I'm not saying go away and relax everyone, but we need that one. Another reliable saying, we need to flatten the curve, make this go out for longer, more slowly if we can, to limit the pressure on hospitals. So I'm still wearing my mask in public, of course. Thank you very much for watching. Remarkably busy at the moment. It's very kind of you. Whereabouts are you, Dr. Coe, please? Uh, I'm in Manila. And I, I stay in the national capital region where we have the most cases of um, COVID-19 in the Philippines. Mm. So, so, so is Manila a, a busy city? Is it quite, quite a populated city? Yes, it is. It's a very densely populated area. Um, we're about the size of 660 square kilometers. But we have at least 13 to 15 million people. Wow! Um, this this um, within the Metro Manila area. Right. Wow. And, and, and what, what's your job, Doctor Ko? Sorry. Well, what, what, what do you do? What's your occupation? Well, um, I wear many hats. Uh, I'm connected with three hospitals. I'm basically a pediatrician and an infectious disease specialist, a subspecialist, and um, Another subspecialty is clinical and molecular pharmacology. So I used to teach um, clinical and molecular pharmacology at the university before I decided to retire. And so currently what I do is I, I still practice um, at three different hospitals in the national capital region. Um, Asian hospital and medical center where I am also the chair of the research and ethics committee at the university of santo tomas hospital in manila i am the chief of pediatric infectious disease and at cardinal santos medical center in san juan which is still part of the national capital region i am the chair of the pharmacy and therapeutics committee interesting yes indeed <laughs> You are indeed a busy man. Yes, three different hospitals and three administrative positions. Wow, yeah, I, I would I be no good at the administration, that's for sure. So, I mean, just before we talk about COVID-19, obviously, um, what is the burden of infectious disease like in the Philippines, and particularly 
is it different for adults and, and for children? So if we start off with the burden of infectious disease in children, first of all, in the Philippines, what's the sort of, what, what problems do people suffer from in the Philippines in terms of infectious diseases in childhood? Well, uh, the Philippines is still a developing country. It's a third world nation. Um, and as in many third world nations, uh, infectious disease will be the number one cause of morbidity and mortality. Mm. So it's quite similar to most of our Southeast Asian um, nations, except for Singapore, but we probably are more similar to Indonesia, Malaysia, and Thailand, where um, the vaccine-preventable diseases are still the most predominant infections we have in the country. Um, in comparison to adults, on the other hand, uh, most of our adult patients have more non-communicable diseases than infectious diseases. So, in spite of the fact that we are the, a developing country, we've been, we've been able to manage a lot of infectious diseases um, very well in, because of uh, vaccine, because of immunization, uh, vaccines mm. and vaccine preventable diseases are actually held at bay for the uh, pediatric age group um, because the government actually has its own expanded program on immunization which is very good um, the government puts a lot of money also into our ep we call it epi or expanded program on immunization right so, so without that then the the conditions in children will be a lot worse. Vaccination is what is maintains the infect the, yes. the health in childhood primarily. Yes, yes, yes. you're right, John. Yeah, yeah, thanks. And, 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 and is, the, is, is, um, is the vaccination program basically carried out throughout the country or is there some areas where the vaccination is quite good and other areas where less people, less children get vaccinated in rural areas, for example? In general, most of the vaccination is from from north to south, which means that it covers almost um, all the 7,640 islands within the archipelago. How many? So, 7,641 <laughs> 7, islands in the archipelago. Wow. I've learned something. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, see, there will be some areas that will be difficult to reach, okay? Um, especially those where there is poor access to health. We, we, we do try, we do try. We have medical missions that, that, that um, and the government uh, is involved in programs also. It has a health center in almost every barangay. We call them barangay, especially the smaller towns and municipalities. Um, there are areas that are quite difficult to reach, but they are far and few. Uh, the majority, the majority of our, uh, of the kids, we are a predominantly young country. Um, the average age in the Philippines is about 27 years old. And almost 52% of the population are actually pediatrics. So we are a, we, we, we are 110 million. We are a predominantly um, young, well, if you look at the, the, the age group, for our country, we're, we're, we're predominantly young. Mm, 
Right, yeah. And, and, and just before we go on, what, what specific diseases would be a problem without a vaccination? What are, the, what are these diseases called? Well, um, we have dengue as a problem, but uh, we had the vaccine. Unfortunately, I'm sure you're aware of the story behind Dengbaksha in the Philippines, and if you're up to date with it, the vaccine is non-existent anymore because of political reasons. Oh, right. Um, the, the dengue vaccine, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. We we were actually the first country to have it available in the world, but unfortunately, because of certain issues and political problems, I think we don't. Well, we don't have it anymore because I think of people. I, I think it's more political rather than um, a vaccine problem in itself. So, so that sounds fixable. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So it's presumably that it's diphtheria, polio, tetanus, mumps, things like that. The, the, the routine, the, the, the common childhood diseases that would be a problem without the vaccination. Yes, it would be a problem. Um, we've had some some outbreaks of polio uh, before we came into the uh, COVID nineteen problem. We were having some problems with um, polio. But they were in specific communities and they were far and few, um, which was really not a very big, big issue for us. But once we spotted them, we started, um, well, the, the Philippine government started mass immunization um, and rebooted the oral poliovirus program. Uh, there was, see, sometimes when, when there are disasters that occur, um, because we are a calamity-prone area, um, some of the kids miss their immunizations. So, and and uh, we right before all of these things happen, um, I, I was referring to you regarding Dengbaksha. Remember, um, a year or two before the outbreak of polio, the outbreak of measles that we had. Uh, the immunization rates actually in the country were very good, especially for public immunization. Unfortunately, um, with the politicization, politicization uh, yes. well, of, of Dengbaksha, people were afraid to get their, of people became afraid of having their kids immunized. So there was a slump in, in, in vaccine coverage and a slump in vaccine coverage removes the gains you have um, for vaccine-preventable diseases. So for, for a while, after, yes, so after, after we had problems with, with Dengvaksha um, and the vaccines got pulled out of the market, uh, we had several disease outbreaks, including measles, so, including dengue, including polio. So we have these three come together almost um, almost continuously. And we were, well, because like I said, you know, we're a calamity. Uh, the, the, the country is in, in, in an area where in most of the calamities will overwhelm us. We had the volcano erupting. We had storms coming in our ways, and it made, made it made it a perfect storm. Indeed, indeed, literally and metaphorically, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. So, so um, COVID-19 is like another problem on top of the infectious disease burden you already have. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so, so um, how, how prevalent is COVID-19 at the moment in Manila, for example? Are, are you seeing a lot of cases? Well, um, in the Philippines, since uh, the outbreak, and we recorded the outbreak actually officially in January, uh, we had three cases. The first three cases we had were foreign. Uh, three Chinese from Wuhan came in, in into the Philippines. One, the three of them got sick. One died. The other two recovered. And we had a lull in between. But I don't think the lull was an actual lull, okay? Um, which means that for any infectious disease, I've always, and, and I always tell my medical students that, that for any infectious disease, um, if you see one case, there probably is another case lurking somewhere, or these are patients that may have had mild symptoms, and uh, we just did not do enough contact tracing at that time, and we probably got sidelined side, side by the fact that um, we had a calamity also during January, which was the eruption of the Taal volcano, so all, all eyes were actually on the relief program for that, and then we had polio outbreak in February. So everybody was, was into the polio virus, um, the oral polio virus program of the government, unfortunately. So that was the lull in February. And then March saw the first spike. The, the actual cases were coming in in bulk already. And that was when the president declared um, a semi-permanent, we, we call it an ECQ or an enhanced community quarantine in uh, the national capital region because we had um, a handful of cases already, 30 plus cases at that time, which was something that, and that we, we had local transmission already, which was alarming. And that's when we started seeing the numbers go up. At present, we have at least, we broke the number already, the 30,000 number, which is very little compared to what you have in the UK. So we have 30,000 <laughs> 30, cases in, in the whole country, and every, everyone is on, on walking on, on eggshells with the 30,000. We have 1,100 deaths so far. So we're averaging about... Um, People ask me every day, what do I do to look It's and, a lot lower uh, than the UK. The UK was down to 15, but that was the lowest since March. Corrupting. We had storms coming in our ways, and it made, made it made it the perfect storm. Indeed, yeah. indeed, literally yeah. and metaphorically. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so um, COVID-19 is like another problem on top of the infectious disease burden you already have. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so, so. Um, how, how prevalent is COVID-19 at the moment in Manila, for example? Are, are you seeing a lot of cases? Well, um, in the Philippines, since uh, the outbreak, and we recorded the outbreak actually officially in January, uh, we had three cases. The 
first three cases we had were foreign. Uh, three Chinese from Wuhan came in, in into the Philippines. One, the three of them got sick. One died. The other two recovered. And we had a lull in between. But I don't think the lull was an actual lull. Okay. Um, which means that for any infectious disease, I've always, and, and I always tell my medical students that, that for any infectious disease, um, if you see one case, there probably is another case lurking somewhere. Or these are patients that may have had mild symptoms. And uh, we just did not do enough contact tracing at that time. And we probably got sidelined side by the fact that um, we had a calamity also during January, which was the eruption of the Taal volcano. So all, all eyes were actually on the relief program for that. And then we had polio outbreak in February. So everybody was, was into the polio virus, um, the oral polio virus program of the government, fortunately. So that was the lull in February. And then March saw the first spike, the, the actual cases were coming in in bulk already. And that was when the president declared um, a semi-permanent, we call it an ECQ or an enhanced community quarantine in uh, the national capital region because we had um, a handful of cases already, 30 plus cases at that time which was something that, and that we, we had local transmission already, which was alarming. And that's when we started seeing the numbers go up. At present, we have at least, we broke the number already, the 30,000 number, which is very little compared to what you have in the UK. So we have 30,000 <laughs> 30, cases in, in the whole country, and every everyone is on, on walking on, on eggshells with the 30,000. We have 1,100 deaths so far. So we're averaging about, um, now, now we're averaging around three to five deaths a day, which isn't really that bad. It's and, a lot lower uh, than the UK. The UK was down to 15, but that was the lowest since March. Yeah. So, so, so is is this is this genuine or does this reflect limited testing do you think well i think it's real i, I think it's it's genuine um in the sense that uh, if you look at the testing data that we have we've, we've like we've had six hundred thousand tests done so far and these are by by rt pcr or reverse transcript based it's the most reliable test yes yes um so all of these patients that we've had the overall positivity rate is um, for for yesterday was six point three percent. When we started this, it was very high, and we had limited testing. Uh, the when we started um, RT PCR testing at the beginning of the pandemic, we had around fifteen to eighteen percent um, positivity rate, which means we were not testing enough. Testing enough means that you need to go low. You need to have lower positivity rates. And today we're, we fluctuate between five to seven percent positivity rates overall. But of course, the more dense areas, the the areas like the national capital region, 
or Region 7, particularly Cebu City, which is hardest hit now. And we don't know if the epicenter is now shifting because the national capital region is in Luzon, while Cebu, uh, which is similar to the national capital region, um, is in the Visayas. So, yeah. in the past few days, they've, the past few days and weeks, they've been having a spike in numbers with the last couple of days. Cebu had more cases than the national capital region altogether. Yeah, so, so different regions being affected to different degrees with different amounts of local transmission. Yes, but if you look at all the other different, we have 13 regions in the country. Um, not everybody has the same numbers as us because if you look at all of the other regions, they have one case a day, two cases a day, four cases a day. It, it's, if you look at all the regions that, that, that have the most number of cases, it would probably be the national capital region because of our density. Yeah. Region 7, which is also another dense area. Um, region 8 now has had several cases, but I think we're, they're attributing these to the repatriates that we are, we're getting. Um, the OFWs or overseas foreign workers, Filipino workers that are coming home in bulk. And then Region 4A, which is Calabarzon, which is uh, the region that is right surrounding the national capital region. So they're getting cases too. The average is about 40 to 60 a day. Again, it's not a lot, not, not that much. It's impressively low. Why do you think it's so, it's so low compared to, say, New York or London? That's well, a, a good question. city, highly populated city, the disease is there. I know. I'm impressed. It's, uh, I'm pleased. I just hope it keeps up. But what, what, right. What's happened? How do you explain this? But everybody here is panicking. <laughs> you see, even with our very low numbers, um, I think the, the enhanced community quarantine, even though it came a bit late in March, you know, it, I, I keep telling the people at the Department of Health that should have been, that, that quarantine, that enhanced community quarantine should have been placed way back when we saw the first three cases among the Chinese. Yes. Um, and we should have shut the border, the same thing that Vietnam did. But then you I could, have, could have done a New Zealand in that case. It could have been like New Zealand and yes, yeah, yes. closed it off, yeah. Right. Yeah. We, that's what we need to do. I mean, it's basic infectious disease. Like, I'm an infectious disease, I, I do infectious disease. And once we see in, in the intensive care unit, one of our patients has a growth in the blood, in the bloodstream or bloodstream infection, yes. we isolate the patient immediately yes. because hospital staff cannot be transferring that particular bloodstream infection to other patients, okay? And then we make sure that after we have isolated that patient and all of the patients have, have, have been cleared, we shut down the ICU and we clean it. So it's the same thing that we're, we're seeing with any infectious disease like this. But of course, you need to shut the borders, but we did not do that early. We did that sometime in March when we already had a string of cases. But the enhanced community quarantine actually helped. 
and um, the other spike, well, we we saw a, we were seeing about 200, 200, 150 to 250 to 300 cases on the average in March and April. In May and June, this went up to about 600 to 700. And we think that the May and June, I think, I think the ones that you see in May and June are probably the ones that are now in the urban poor. Because the urban poor community is a very large community in the national capital region. If you, if you look at the whole data of all of the 13 regions in the country, um, those that are more provincial, those that are more or that, that, that are more rural have actually spotty cases. They're, they're very few. They're, they're, they're not as many as what we have in the national capital region. Why? Because, well, it, they're farmlands. You know, mm. one the houses are very one house is very far away from another house. And the communities are actually uh, fewer in number compared to national capital region where you have like for example Quezon City alone Quezon City which is one of 17 cities in the national capital region has uh, a population of about two and a half million yeah Oft often living in very close proximity yes mm. yes and there are a lot of urban poor communities um, in in the, the within the Metro Manila. So, the metro. so there's obviously community transmission going on because, because these cases keep popping up, but obviously there's no exponential growth like there has been in other places. It's uh... Yeah, and, and what we've been seeing is that the, the ex well, it's not an actual exponential growth that we're seeing. We're seeing some of the cases pop up in certain urban poor communities now. What yes. the local mayors actually do is they lock them down. So they're, they're doing a local lockdown instead. And quarantine, they quarantine certain, we call them barangays. So we, we quarantine certain barangays. But there are, there are actually quarantine and isolation facilities within each local government unit. I just, for, for, from, for the health, I, I don't even know why they don't want to use it. Maybe it's because some of, the, some of the patients don't want to be quarantined in a government facility. I'm really not sure why they don't like to use it, but we have um, several government facilities for, for quarantine. So the message I'm getting here really is it's good localized administration, quickly reacting to cases, closing down particular areas and small regions on a dynamic basis. And, and, and you've got uh, uh, population compliance with these measures. So, yeah. so, so, so the attack on the disease is quite targeted and quite specific. Yes, 
exactly. So where the problem is? They're, they're really, well, they can, they can do better. That, I think my point is they can do better so that we, we see the numbers drop down dramatically. And when I say that they can do better, um, and I've been saying that because I, I write a blog. I have a blog, actually, and I we'll, started... We'll, we'll post a link to that, of course, if you don't mind. <laughs> I don't mind. Um, some of the media have actually picked up on the blog, and, and, and that's the reason why suddenly I'm, I'm, I'm being interviewed left and right for I do not know what reason at all. But um, I think I've got an idea, <laughs> because you're very well informed. <laughs> well, what, what happens, what, what, what I suggested once, what I suggested once, sometime way back in March, was that um, should we get out of the enhanced community quarantine, each local government should actually prepare itself, which means that every local government should have, A, its own testing centers, and be its own isolation and quarantine facilities. And you cannot, you should not make a local government go, you should not get the local government out of the general quarantine procedures if they don't have these two basic things. Because what's going to happen is that if you, you lift the quarantine and you have patients within your, your area getting the disease and then you're going to make them stay and occupy another local government facility. You are going to overwhelm the other local government for that. So I think basically we're, we, we're not there yet. The second, the, the, we're, we're ramped up in testing facilities, which is very good because we have about, uh, let me see, we have more than 59 testing facilities already in the whole country. Are the start... tests produced in, in the country? Sorry? Are the tests produced in the Philippines or are they, are no. they important? We have one which is produced in the Philippines by the University of the Philippines. But um, we had to stop that because there was some contamination in their testing kits. Cryptocurrency, where fortunes can be made overnight. And 2021 is the hottest year on record. Bitcoin set a new all-time high. Contamination in their testing kits. So, yeah. Is there any antibody testing as well at the moment? Yes. Uh, <laughs> there is a mixture of rapid antibody testing and um, immunoassays at the same time. But we don't actually advocate the use of rapid antibody testing uh, routinely. Um, it's cheaper but the gold standard is still RT-PCR and yeah. all our patients, all our confirmed cases in the country are documented using RT-PCR. Now, is the clinical presentation of COVID-19 in the Philippines comparable with what you've read about in other countries, that people have the fever, the dry cough, the tiredness, the myalgia? Yes, actually in the beginning, um, when we were seeing a lot of patients coming down with it, that was the primary presentation. Uh, I have had colleagues, friends who passed away from COVID-19. Um, and they, they start off with fever, later on there's dry cough, there is a sudden shortness of breath. And it is correct 
that um, when these patients get intubated, the outcome is actually grim. Most of the patients, most of my colleagues that got intubated actually passed away. Um, those that did not are the younger ones. So the probability of mortality um, is around 80% after intubation. And at that time, we were still, we were, we were, we were scrambling for the kind of drug to use, whether we were using hydroxychloroquine with or without azithromycin, with or without any monoclonal antibody together with it. Um, there was no remdesivir that was available at that time. Now we are part of the solidarity trial that's being done by the WHO globally. So I guess those are some of the reasons why we probably have better outcomes today. And B, um, the, we, we know already which are the at-risk groups. So the at-risk groups actually stay at home. They don't like to come out, including my mom um, and those that have comorbidities. So when people find out that they have, they, they, are co they have comorbidities, they know that they, they should not be going to crowded places. So they try to avoid it. Uh, and are, are these people supported at home? Do they get food and provisions and things delivered to them? Now, yes, actually the government provides, um, we call it, in the Philippines, we call it ayuda. That, that, that's the, the, the term that we use. And ayuda means help. Um, so the government provides rice, uh, canned goods, and some cash for, um, for the workers that have been displaced and for those that are sick or for those that are confined at home, or those that are quarantined at home for a while. But like I said, it's still not the right thing to do, because the better thing to do is once you've isolated, you, you found out there, there is somebody in the community, particularly the urban poor, where um, their, their, the, the room is like 15 square meters, and that's their whole house. If the, if the your 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 house your room, the room that you're in right now yeah is occupied usually by about seventeen or ten to seventeen people in, in yeah. the urban poor community so it's it's easy to get to get infected and the transmission there will never end you need to move out these people test test now the people that they have come in contact with. If the other people that they have come in contact with and do a first tier contact tracing, if the people that they come in contact with are also um, infected, then they should be um, and that way uh, you to monitor them. We now we, we now don't recommend the two negative swabs uh, because once upon a time. The WHO recommended two negative swabs 14 days after before you can be considered recovered. So now the WHO has the WHO keeps shifting back and forth as well regarding sure. this. Yes, but it's understandable because it's a new disease. So I, I get the fact that they really don't have a lot of information also on their hands. So now we know for a fact that. Um, 
if you um, if you still test positive after 14 days of illness and you're already asymptomatic for the past 10 to 14 days, um, it probably would just mean that there are vir there, there's there, there are skeletal remnants of the virus. Yeah, but non-infectious viral fragments. Yes, we don't know whether they're actually, once you get swabbed and you're positive, it does not necessarily mean that um, uh, the virus is active uh, and it can it can mean um, their, their skeletal remnants. So we don't people are still symptomatic, So if people are still symptomatic, do you think the infection persists for longer? If the sorry, if, if people are still symptomatic, yes, does that mean the infection is persisting for longer? They're still infectious for longer. Well, for after fourteen days, if patients are still asymptomatic, you must think of a super of a secondary infection because right. once with a viral infection, this is self-limited. Whether you like it or not, patients will get better. So once they've come down, after fourteen days, and you're still symptomatic. You still have pulmonary problems. You're still intubated. You probably, you probably have a secondary infection already because of your intubation, staying in the hospital for quite some time. But in the majority, in those that have just mild, moderate diseases, they get better in three to four days. Yes. So as a general principle, if someone has a, a respiratory viral infection, is it how probable is it that they're going to get a secondary bacterial infection? It depends on their immune system. Um, for most of, well, for the patients that I've had, the pediatric patients that I have had, um, they recover very quickly. So I have had uh, among my pediatric COVID patients, they've recovered very well, even the, even the one that had. Um, a very bad infection. She had actually uh, urosepsis at the same time, but treated her with a broad spectrum antibiotic for the um, urosepsis, and she did better. They so recorded... infection of the infection of the kidneys and the bladder and the urinary tract. Yeah. Yeah. So this is interesting because. If we look at pandemics in the past, such as the 1918 pandemic, 1919 pandemic, probably a lot of people who died in that actually died of secondary bacterial infection. Not necessarily a majority, but a lot. So, so as we have antibiotics now, and generally speaking, they're available. I mean, I, I'm hopeful that that's going to greatly reduce the case fatality rate. Would you, would you share that optimism? Yes, yes, I would. I would. Um, that mean, and we have better health care today compared to the 1918s and the, to the 1920s. I mean, compared to 100 years ago, we have better health care. We have more, um, we have, what's the right term that I should use? We have a better system at our disposal. Yes. Yes. Okay. We, have more, we have more leverage now. We know what to do. We have better tools and we have better equipment. And uh, these improve actually survival. Yeah. It also prolongs their stay in the hospitals. But the outcomes are much better. Yeah.
So we can expect, hopefully, 80% to have a, a very mild or asymptomatic illness. It's just this small amount, maybe 15% that get quite sick and 5% or so that get critical. Is, is that roughly what you think you're seeing in the Philippines, that sort of ratios? The data that we have in the Philippines is that 99.6% are mild. 99.6? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Great, great news. Yeah, right. Okay. 99.6% are mild or asymptomatic, and we only have 0.4% now that are um, critical or severe. So the numbers are relatively low. Even if you look at the data that we have, um, whether you're looking at the WHO's data, or you're looking at Johns Hopkins, or whether you're looking at Worldometers, or the, um, um, the New York Times, whichever data that you're looking at when it comes to the Philippines, you will see our mortality, five, eight, and five, two, ten. So it is, is so point about half a percent of cases are critical as opposed to three, four, five percent in the UK, for example. Are you getting less, a lower percentage of critical cases in the Philippines than other countries? Um, I think so. But compared to, compared to um, our neighboring Southeast Asian nations, we're doing better than Indonesia, but we're not doing better than Thailand, we're not doing better than Malaysia, we're not doing better than, than um, some of our Southeast Asian neighboring countries. Do you think there's a potential viral phylogenetic explanation for that? Mm, no, I don't think so. No, I don't either. <laughs> I don't think so. It's the same just, virus pretty well, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yes. I just oh, think that the other right. countries are more aggressive when it comes to, to, to treating the virus. But if you look at the data of Singapore, just look at the data of Singapore, they have more cases than we do. Uh, they're actually, in the beginning, in the beginning, um, Singapore had very few cases. And then again, we go back to the WHO. The, the, the WHO was lauding them for their efforts. And then later on, they had a very huge outbreak. And that's yeah. very huge outbreak was coming from actually um, communities wherein their, their construction workers or uh, these people who were building facilities were all housed together in a dormitory. It's a bit that, like, a bit like they, the meat processing workers in Germany and the States. Yes, yes. So again, it is the congestion. I mean, it, it still goes back to the same point. If you if you do some epidemiology dynamics and some, you, you can always see that the, the congested areas, the crowded places where in the transmission is actually um, the cause for these patients developing an infection. Yes. But you'll also see that the mortality rate among these patients are very low because they're, they're a working population and they're younger. Yes. It's when they, when they transmit the infection to the elderly or to those that are susceptible, that we get higher rates of mortality. For example, the one in Seattle. I mean, you, you know the case in, in the United yes, States. Yes, I remember that, yeah. Yeah, yeah right. That, that, they had multiple deaths in nursing homes. Yeah, the K K Kings County, Seattle, yeah, in Washington State. Correct. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I, I'm actually remarkably encouraged. Only about half a percent you think are getting are getting critical illnesses. So the case fatality rate is going to be about 0.1 or something like that. No, our case fatality rate was very high in the beginning because we were not, well, at the beginning of the pandemic, we were not looking for, for a lot of patients. We were not testing enough. And you know that um, to calculate the case fatality rate, that's the number of deaths divided by the number of people that, that actually yeah. are, are ill. Yeah. So the more we identify, the more positives we get, um, the better. So that means that our case fatality rate today uh, when we started this was somewhere at 14%. We are now at 3 point something, 3.8%. What, what would you estimate the actual infection fatality rate to be, though? I know you don't have the data to answer that, but what, what, what's your guess? The Philippines or the world? Uh, no, the Philippines. Philippines, maybe about 3%. Right. Okay. So, so the potential in some poorer areas of the world for, for, for mass fatalities is still present then. Yes. Yes. But you know, I, what I'm, I, what, what's, what's really peculiar for me is the fact that um, I think that perhaps there is some form of herd immunity in the lower socioeconomic class. Uh, they're able to survive many of the more virulent infectious diseases that we've had in the past. Uh, and if you look at the data of um, poorer countries, the mortality rate does not seem to be as high as those that are more economically privileged. And is that explained purely by the, the demographic or is there great other reasons for that? Well, I think there are multiple reasons. And one of the reasons, like I said, one of the reasons that we probably have less deaths is because we have a very young population. Yeah, so so you, you've got, le you've got less um, chronic heart disease, you've got less chronic obstructive pulmonary disease because these diseases are associated with older people. Right. We, we have them, but they're not that, while, while we have them, um, they're not that plenty. The second thing about this is that while we have them, um, the, the enhanced community quarantine that was put in place in March has, uh, has, has not allowed the disease to actually affect the elderly and those that, would, that have comorbids. Yeah. You know, the Filipinos are, there is one thing about the Filipinos. Um, if you tell them that you're going to die, they're, they're not going to go out. They're not going to risk their lives, especially those that are more affluent. On the other hand, in the poorer communities, they're willing to do anything to survive. Yes, because what they eat that day depends on what they earn that day, doesn't it? Yeah. Correct. Yeah. So herd immunity may well be developing in the Philippines, and I suppose we'll only know when we get extensive antibody testing. Yes. Yes. I think that is that is a research um, that is a research topic that somebody who is interested in would probably want to do, particularly 
among the urban poor communities. There's I, so I many think, PhD opportunities at the moment, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope people take these up. Yeah. It, so is there much diabetes in the Philippines? Because that's a significant comorbidity, isn't it? Yes, there is a lot of diabetes as well. Most of the endocrine problems, you have diabetes, you have hyperthyroidism. Of course, you include all of the other comorbids like hypertension. That, that's, we see a lot of that also um, uh, in the country, particularly for those that are above 40 years old. Um, but majority of them are actually type 2 diabetes and rather than insulin dependent or type 1 diabetes. And of course, this, this is remarkably common all over Asia, isn't it? Type 2 diabetes. There's, it's another yeah. pandemic, isn't it? It's, uh, yes. Yes. Yeah, which is, of course, would be a fascinating topic for a different, <laughs> different video. <laughs> now, um, what's your view on the vitamin D status in the Philippines? Well, we get a lot of that in the sun. <laughs> and do people get whole body exposure to the sun or do people there's a lot of sun in india but but culturally people keep out of the sun so is the philippines different to that no we're, we're very different i mean we love it it's like it's like second nature to us we need to get out we have a lot of sun um there we are like i said we're 7641 islands which makes uh, the beach something that is right annexed to many of our front doors. You are indeed fortunate in that respect. <laughs> right, so that's interesting. So th there's not widespread vitamin D deficiency. In the States, for example, 42% yes. of the entire population of the United States is vitamin D deficient. Um, oh. And when you, look, when you look at the black American, African-American population, that goes up to about 70 or 80%. So, so in the Philippines, it sounds like vitamin D levels are, are going to be basically adequate in the vast majority of the population. Do, do you think that could be part of the reason you're seeing small amounts of disease in the Philippines? There's been no extensive study um, correlating the two, but if, it, if, if, if there is a correlation between the two, between vitamin D and um, the outcome of patients who have COVID-19, then Good for us, hooray. Well, indeed, indeed. But you, you don't think it's a ludicrous hypothesis. You can see that vitamin D is an immunologically required molecule. It's, does the science kind of make sense in your head that that's a possible experiment? Yeah, it makes sense, actually. It, it does make sense. But we'll, we probably will have to look around also at other countries within this. But in general, in general, if you look at the Southeast Asian nations, where we have a lot of sun, okay, and you see how the, how the people in, in the Southeast, I'm not talking about the whole of Asia, because the whole of Asia would probably include China, Japan, Korea. Sure. Yeah. Uh, among, among our, our northern neighbor, northern Asian neighbors, um, they really had a very bad winter. That, they, they had a lot of cases of coronavirus, of COVID-19, um, due to the fact that uh, when this started sometime in December, January, February, and March, it was winter for them. We never have winter here. So if you look at the cases in the Southeast Asian nation, you probably are right. Because we have very low cases actually within Southeast Asia alone. 
Interesting. Because, I mean, I'm assuming that the nutritional status of the urban poor particularly is not necessarily that good. Yep, you're right. Yeah. So that's interesting. I've got, I don't want to take up all your day because I said, but it's so interesting. Can I ask you, I've got another clinical question. For, 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 years, for years, when someone has an infectious disease, obviously the, the white cells are going to recognize that. They're going to release the cytokines. The cytokines are going to affect the hypothalamus and the hypothalamus is going to induce the fever. My thinking there is that the fever is, is, is a physiological response to the infection. It's adaptive and that the fever will reduce the efficiency of uh, viral replication and improve the efficiency of the immune system. Do, do, do you think what I've just said there is clinically valid and clinically true? To some degree, yes. And I've always told my patients that the fever will always be your friend. And yet, and, and yet, in the UK and the United States, whenever someone has a fever, they tend to take fever-reducing antipyretic drugs to bring the fever down. If, some, if someone has COVID-19 disease or another viral disease, do you think it's better that they leave their fever at the higher physiological level rather than they artificially bring it down using acetaminophen or paracetamol or ibuprofen? Um, I never recommend a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, an NSAID. It, that to me, um, it does not. O I, I, it it brings down the fever uh, much faster and much better than paracetamol or acetaminophen. But um, it can also because it from from the nature of the drug, it's non. It's an anti-inflammatory. The inflammatory cells in your body actually help in fighting off um, part of the part of whatever infection you have. So that's not part of my armamentarium and I really don't recommend it. Um, well, some the other doctors do, um, but from an infectious disease point, it does not make sense. Mm. And the it, information is very much part of the body's response, isn't it? Very much part of yes, the immunological yes, response. Yes, yes. It, it's part of our immunological responses. That's the only way we can create antibodies sufficiently. And you're right. When you, you, you go through all of the other mechanisms of how our body is able to recognize an infection, create antibodies, and create other um, molecular structures within our body in order to fight off an infection. And when, my, when moms ask me regarding fever, I always tell them, you just wait for two, three days, just monitor it. If it's higher than 38.5 and he feels cranky, you can give him a dose of paracetamol, but you don't have to give it round the clock. Because sometimes if you see the kids, well, because I'm a pediatrician. Mm. So if you see the kids and they, they, they have a depth of 38, 39, some of them are still playing. I tell the moms, you take them to me when they're not eating, they're not playing, and they're just sleeping. But otherwise, look at them. So it's, they're, it's, they're it's still active. Child, not the fever. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I'm this, it's amazing. It's not disturbing the child. They're 39 and they're just out playing like normal. It's amazing sometimes. Exactly. Exactly. I, I always ask the moms that. Is the fever bothersome to you or to the child? Yes. 
she goes, well, you know, that, that's their answer. She says, see, it's not bothering the kid. You leave it about two, three days, might go away. Unless, of course, the child has other symptoms. Like, for example, the child is vomiting or the child has diarrhea, has abdominal pain or has seizures. Then, then that's a different story. Th then you're looking for the etiological organism of that, aren't you? You're looking yeah. for the, the underlying yeah. cause of that. Now, what, sorry. Yeah. Well, what people no, worry about a lot in children is febrile convulsions. What age group of children can get febrile convulsions and how common are they? Well, the magic, the, the, the general rule is six months to six years old. Yeah. Okay. So you just remember six. Six to six, okay. yeah. Yes, six months to six years old. That's the most common age group. It peaks around around two years old, one to two years old. Um, and there is usually a history of um, somebody in the family who has had febrile convulsions as well when they were kids. And it does not occur very frequently. Um, as a matter of fact, some of the patients that have had it may never have, have it later on. And if a child does have a single febrile convulsion, that's not going to kill the child or anything. That's a fully recoverable situation. Yes. And we don't start patients on anticonvulsants when they have had no. a febrile seizure anymore. Uh, once upon a time, again, uh, in the olden days, people, every time they have, they, they see patients who have had febrile convulsions, they are started on phenobarbital or phenytoin um, routinely. We've, 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 we've seen um, enough evidence that starting patients on anticonvulsants is not uh, the right way to go. <clears throat> so seven-year-olds are not going to have febrile convulsions. They, they, they can almost be treated like adults in that respect. Uh, if you have a patient who is seven years old and has seizures, uh, it's still possible because um, febrile convulsions can occur up to an extended age, even up to eight or nine. Okay. However... As a general rule, we look at a normal distribution curve. And if you look at the normal distribution curve, they are at that end of the distribution curve where they probably should not be having seizures anymore when they have fever, especially if it is the first time that they are presenting with fever and seizures. Right. So you need to, because that might present as a red herring, and you must look for a different etiologic uh, cause for why the patient had seizures during the fever. You might miss out a bacterial meningitis in your patient. Indeed, indeed. And the other thing that always concerned me about children, because I get questions on this all the time, is very young children can't control their body temperature in the same way that older children can. And there's a risk that the temperature can go very highly to, to dangerous levels. Um, and of course, if the temperature goes too high, that can result in brain damage, potentially, if the temperature reaches, I don't know, 42 degrees centigrade, maybe. Uh, what temperature would brain damage be, be a risk in children, do you think, young children? I've never, I, I've had kids that have had a, even up to 40, 41, and I've not had a brain damaged child with that. Um, if you're just looking at fever in itself, you have to remember, um, younger children actually, uh, the reason why younger children um, have more episodes of fever
fever and higher fever is because this is an age group wherein playing for them, you know, when they're when they don't feel that sick, the first thing that they, the in, the first instinct they have is to just go out and play. Yeah. Even if they have them, they're, they're they're going to run. You you drag them to school. They're going to kiss their classmates. They're going to run around, which exacerbates the the fever of the patient because of the uh, insensible water loss from the perspiration. See, if they perspire, they have more insensible water losses, and that brings the temperature up. They will not hydrate themselves. On the other hand, older children are able to recognize that they have fever. And because they're able to recognize that they have fever, the tendency is they will rest. Yes. Unlike the young. I've always thought that, I don't know how accurate this is, I'm no specialist, but ch children up to the age of two can't really effectively control their body temperature. And they're more at risk of, of, of increasing temperatures rather than children over the age of two. Is that a fair kind of cutoff or is it more diffuse than that? Well, I think it's more diffuse than that. So it's kind of, ch children would l learn to control their body temperature between, say, 18 months of age and three years of age, that sort of. I, I think the kids that are more than four or five years old should be able to control their body temperatures more than the younger ones. Right, okay. That, 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 that's useful, yeah. <laughs> because it's just, just I mean, I, I, last year I was working on an A&E department and, and when children come in who are unwell, giving them ibuprofen and paracetamol is just so routine and universal. And I always question this, but um, th this entrenched practice is so hard to get over. The, the, the symptomatic treatment as opposed to a causal treatment. Well, I guess it, um, I, 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 I think the reason why um, some patients receive um, symptomatic treatment is for the sake of the parents or whoever is the caregiver um, because they, to them, you know how patients are when they go home without a script or without a prescription. They feel uh, cheated or... Yes. They need some magic medicine, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yes. If you gave them something that is placebo, many of them would go home and say, well, right. Now you have to take this. Yeah. yeah. I just got one more question, if you don't mind. Is that okay? And that's fine. Yeah, because I think this is, I'm, I'm working with colleagues in India at the moment where I'm quite concerned about um, widespread uh, potential fatalities in India. And we know that a lot of people that deteriorate with COVID-19 are going to get sicker in the second week, not so much as the result of the virus, but as a result of the, the inflammatory uh, reaction to the virus. Um, uh, that, that can potentially result in the, the severe acute respiratory syndrome, for example, which is is primarily inflammatory. And, and we know that that's what we now know that dexamethasone can be effective in treating some of these uh, some of these inflammatory changes in the second week. Um, what what I'm unclear about is how are we going to differentiate between a patient that's deteriorating because of a, an immunological inflammatory reaction to COVID nineteen as opposed to a patient that is basically recovered from the COVID-19, but is developing bacterial secondary infection. 
difficult question. It's very difficult when you're. It's a di it's a difficult question because um it's a it's a personal call of the attending physician when he sees the patient. So it's individualized. Like for example, if I see that kind of situation and I know that the patient should have been recovering already, but suddenly deteriorates, I probably would have some laboratories redone. Yes. And yes. I probably would have a CT scan or, or more chest x-rays done in the patient. Yeah, you would investigate and, them, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I will have to reinvestigate and see if the WBC is all the way up, the CRPs are up. The so if the, are if the neutrophils are up, it might be a bacterial infection, for example. Yes, sometimes you might, because most of the patients with viral infections will have normal white blood cells, and um, they will have some form of leukopenia for, for, in general. Yeah, so uh, a little amount of white blood cells. Yes. So if, if there is an increased amount of white blood cells in these patients, then you must, you might want to think otherwise that these patients are probably yeah. Yeah. Um, getting a secondary bacterial infection. So my my hunch would be, if I if I wasn't sure, I would probably cover it with, with antibiotics anyway. Would that be? Yes. In my cases that I get, especially the complicated ones. Yeah. This is. Pre-COVID, not post-COVID. Yeah. Okay. Pre-COVID, which means that this is before the COVID um, epidemics. Yeah. Um, when I get cases that uh, that is a toss-up between acute respiratory distress syndrome, but these are adult respiratory distress, they go into ARDS. Uh, the white, the lungs are completely wiped out, and we, yeah. we don't know whether the has a bacterial infection that's causing it yeah. or a viral infection started it and that's for the reason why they're intubated. Uh, I actually put the patients on both the antibiotic and dexamethasone. <coughs> on both? Because, yes, on both. Yeah. Because yeah. If, that means that I would have had the patient covered for both a bacterial infection after working up the patient. I have to work up the patient first and sure. I'll start the treatment almost immediately. Um, and the reason for that is, uh, it, if this is ARDS, you have to remember even bacterial pneumonia can trigger ARDS. And ARDS patients will respond remarkably to any corticosteroid, whether you're giving hydrocortisone, whether you're giving dexamethasone, or whether you're giving any other parenteral steroid to the patients. And I have a lot of patients that remarkably do better after that. That it's also possible that they've had a secondary bacterial infection that triggered the ARDS of this patient, but you can't tell. Right. You can't but, tell. but you cover that with antibiotics anyway. Yes. Yes. And it's it's a personal call that yeah. you will have to make. Mm. No, I just think antibiotic uh, availability is going to be a big factor in reducing um, case fatality rates in this pandemic. Yeah, but it's widely available. Um, a lot yeah. of the antibiotics are actually widely available. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Dr. Ko, that, that was brilliant. I've, I've kept you talking for about an hour now. So, <laughs> and uh, I know a lot of people around the world will watch this all the way through. I think there's some really useful um, things in there and, um, but, well, life-saving things. So we're really grateful for your time and I'm sure you get lots of positive feedback on this from around the world. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
So, um, do you see do you see um, a vaccine coming next year? Just just as a quick one to the end. Um, I'm hopeful, but uh, I don't think next year will will be the year that we will see the vaccine. Oh, really? It will take time for for vaccines to get developed. Uh, you have to remember that um, while they while it, it while we are um, I know there are three vaccines currently that are already in phase two. There are a lot of vaccines that are actually in phase two, but they are of different platforms, like the one of Moderna, the one from Oxford, and the one from China. are actually um, trying to go into a phase three clinical trial already. Uh, it's kind of complicated in the sense that uh, if you go through the history of um, vaccinology, uh, you will need to make sure that these patients actually have an immunologic response uh, to, to the vaccines. Like, I mean, if the vaccine is effective and safe, do, the, do, do you need just one dose of the vaccine or will you need multiple doses eventually? Because if I start the patients now and I put them on a clinical trial and I monitor them and find out that after 30 days, the antibodies go down, they might need a second dose in order to put their antibodies up again. So. I might need two or three doses, which will now prolong the clinical trial stage in order to find out what, at what level will these patients be protected and how many of these patients that get into the clinical trial will actually be, will actually reach protective level. Yes. So that, that, that part of the clinical trial, unless I, unless we know I'm I tell my patients and tell everybody to let's just live in a world without the vaccine for a while. I mean, at the rate we're going, we're almost 10 million by the end of the month of June, which means that uh, that would have covered um, quite a number of people uh, in this pandemic. Right. Let's try to live without the vaccine for a while. Um, then if the vaccine comes, that will be a wonderful bonus. Yes, yes. That, that would can't, be, can't count on it. Your, your terms, a wonderful bonus. Because you have to remember, even though you're able to come up with it, then you have to make sure that there are enough doses for everybody. And the different platforms that are being used, uh, whether they are live attenuated, whether they're genetically engineered vaccines, and so on and so forth, uh, will matter. For some of them, like for vaccine A, you might get an efficacy of, let's say, 80%, for vaccine B, 65%, and vaccine C, 90%. But either the problem you will get for the three vaccines, or let's take for granted that they, they're all 75% in efficacy in protection, you might not, because they have different platforms. They're, they're coming from different platforms. They're not interchangeable, especially if you need multiple doses, which means if I get vaccine A, I must continue and finish vaccine A, mm. and so on and so forth down the line. So it's, it's kind of complicated at mm. this point. Mm. And then you have to look at the manufacturing side. I mean, we have seven, eight billion people in this planet. If everybody wants a dose of the vaccine, there has been no vaccine that there has been no vaccine created 
or one billion noses in the world. None. I've never seen one. You'll need how many syringes, glass syringes, manufacturing plants, needles, and so on and so forth. So while we're able to develop one, I don't know if there, there is sufficient manufacturing capacity for all of the vaccines as well. Mm. Yeah. So that's well, the reservation. So yeah, that, that, that's okay. So we're not gonna we're not gonna wait for that. We're, we're gonna carry on with what we're doing now and and hope for the best on the vaccine. Yeah, that, that's that's good advice. Yeah. What I I'm hoping for is that there is a cure. I think the way to go would probably be a treatment rather than the vaccine. Antiviral and therapeutics. I, yes. Yes. And I think there should be more resources poured out poured out at looking for a cure for the disease, for, 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 for the infection. Because some of the patients, because the way I'm seeing it now, is that the majority of the patients are actually presenting as mild, they're recovering well, 10 mil, 9 million cases, 400,000 deaths. I mean, you're, they're, they're, they're doing remarkably well in spite of the fact that we don't have vaccines. So they're recovering practically on their own in the majority. Yeah. What do we need? We need a cure. Yes. More than the vaccine. That would be excellent, wouldn't it? Right. That would be great. Yeah. Dr. Co, th thank you very much. You've given us well over an hour of your remarkably busy schedule and uh, really appreciate it. So uh, you're welcome. Th thank you. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. Have a great day there. Yeah, you, you too. I'll, I'll stop the recording now. Th thank you, Dr. Ko. Really appreciate it. Bye-bye.